Join us September 30th through October 2nd for the 26th annual Zero Mental Health Symposium. The topic of this year's symposium couldn't be more timely as we look at healing from historical trauma. This is the first year we are hosting the event virtually, and the best part is the cost to attend is reduced, and full conference registration is only $180. Also, there are discounts available to students and groups. Learn more about the symposium and register today at zerosymposium.org. I tell everyone, the question isn't, why are so many opioids available in Oklahoma? The question should be, why do so many Oklahomans want to take opioids? And I think it's because of historical trauma. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guest is Dr. Jason Beeman. Dr. Beeman currently serves as the Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Oklahoma State University Center for Health Sciences, as well as the Director of Training and Education for Oklahoma State University Center for Wellness and Recovery. And our friend, Rebecca Hubbard, who serves as the Association's Director of Outreach, Prevention, and Education, asked Dr. Beeman to be on the show today because she wanted to talk to him about two educational events that are coming up. The first is the Virtual Addiction Medicine Conference coming up September 8th through the 13th. Topics will include addiction in Native America, addiction in law, update in addiction medicine, and foundations in addiction medicine. And you can click the link in the show notes for that conference website. And by the way, Terry White, the association's new CEO, will be among the speakers at that conference. And she'll be talking about mental health parity, which describes the equal treatment of mental health conditions and substance use disorders in insurance plans. And then the second event Rebecca and Dr. Beeman will talk about is, of course, the Zero Mental Health Symposium, which is coming up September 30th through October 2nd, virtually on Zoom. The theme this year is Healing from Historical Trauma, and you can register at zerosymposium.org, and that link, too, is in the show notes. And during the symposium, Dr. Beeman will present a session titled Historical Trauma and Addiction. Okay, let's get the conversation started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Thank you so much, Dr. Beeman, for joining us today on the Mental Health Download. You have an exciting conference coming up, which uh, is the Addiction Medicine Conference, and it's virtual this year, and it's set for September 8th through the 13th. Can you tell us kind of what role you've had in the planning of this conference and what we can kind of expect from it? Uh, Sure. We're very excited to be having our second annual Addiction Medicine Conference. As the Director of Education and Training for the National Center for Wellness and Recovery here at OSU, I started the conference last year, and it was a five-day conference, and we delivered somewhere around 30 hours of newly created content and curriculum during that week. Uh, It was a big success last year, and so we are Uh, bringing it back this year, and hopefully we'll continue it every year in the future. And we are updating all of our content and creating a lot of new curriculum and educational opportunities. It's a six-day conference. Day one is addiction in Native America. Day two is addiction in the law. Day three is update in addiction medicine. Four, five, and six our foundations in addiction medicine where clinicians that don't have a lot of exposure to that foundational knowledge can come and get up to speed in the course of a weekend. 
Wow, that's amazing and sounds like a great conference and very important information. Can you speak to why this conference is so important as well as specifically during this time of COVID-19? Yeah, I think the education is really, I look at the ability to get everybody speaking the same language and everybody believe in the same thing. And in Oklahoma, I think that we have made incredible strides in the treatment of addiction, not even in in the medical treatment of it, but in the way we treat each other when we're suffering from addiction. And I believe that we've made incredible progress in that over the last 10 to 15 years, breaking down a lot of stigma, increasing access uh, to treatment. However, we're not all uh, speaking the same language. I heard about this idea. Does that work? What about this? And it's a good way to get everybody up to speed in speaking the, the same words. That's never been more important than it is in COVID because we are seeing an increase in the use of substances, but also a decrease in the use of treatment. So people are thankfully staying at home. However, they're not going out and getting treatment for their substances. And that's really, really concerning for us. So we think conferences and opportunities like this are going to be more important now than they ever have been before. Absolutely. And I'm probably your biggest cheerleader and couldn't agree more. The strides we've made in Oklahoma the last 10 or 15 years have been epic, just absolutely phenomenal. And I'm so grateful that you and others have been able to lead that charge. We desperately needed it. And addiction is is a mental health disorder, just like any other mental health disorder, as you and I both know. And it deserves the attention and consideration that other illnesses have so that people can uh, achieve wellness, right? And I love the conference and the ability to reach out. Uh, You mentioned specifically about isolation, and that is something that is of concern with COVID-19 and how that can play into addiction. Can you just speak briefly on why that might be a bigger concern than at other times? Yeah, absolutely. I think social connectivity is one of the most important things that keep us from descending into addiction, but also when we are addicted, social networks and social connectivity can be one of the single biggest helps getting into recovery. And it's also been the thing that's been uh, decimated the most by the current pandemic. So we think that it's it's very important for anyone uh, struggling with addiction to reach out to their support system virtually, on the phone, even in person doing all, you know, appropriate social distancing. But social networking can't go away. It's my single biggest uh, tool in fighting addiction. If you think about it, when you're diagnosed with cancer, your whole family rushes to the bedside and they're there for you, whatever you need. And it's the same with other medical problems. When you're diagnosed with addiction, your whole family runs the opposite direction. And that can be really, really harmful to people who are trying to make better decisions and trying to engage in long-term recovery. We don't want to take steps back in the progress that we've made in social connectivity. So we're, we're really hoping that we can continue to find innovative solutions to keep people connected to each other. Yeah, I completely hear you. And I know that just like hope is the number one correlated factor to suicide prevention, connection has been dubbed the opposite of, of addiction, right? Not sobriety, but connection. 
And I think that you very much get to the point with what you just said there, that when we are feeling or, or, or are isolated because of a pandemic, we're at an even greater risk in our addiction for relapses or additional struggles and reaching out and connection, uh, creating connection and maintaining connection is vital. I am excited to hear what more you guys can offer in that conference uh, coming up here in just a few weeks, September 8th through the 13th. You also mentioned kind of specific groups that you'll be talking about and addiction within those particular populations. I'm wondering if you can tell us some some more about helping people in the community of Native American. You mentioned Native Amer- addiction in Native America. What, what can you tell us more about that experience? Yeah, so this is a new day component of the Addiction Medicine Conference that we're offering this year. And it's for several reasons. One is we know that the current opioid epidemic has disproportionately affected Native American communities. It's not just Native American nations themselves. In Oklahoma, our nations exist largely in uh, rural areas, very strong rural ties. And we've seen rural Oklahoma absolutely decimated by opioid use and now methamphetamine use. And so we just think it's really, really important to acknowledge that. At OSUCHS, we just opened the first tribal affiliated medical school in the country with the Cherokee Nation campus. Uh, We're very excited about that. And uh, we love our connections that we have with the Native American tribes. And we find that they're so important, so valuable, that we need to uh, make sure that we're uh, focusing on that population in and of itself because they have a lot of intricacies. And the way I would approach a person of indigenous origin would be different than I would approach someone uh, of different background because you wanna make sure with addiction treatment that you're always looking at the cultural context and the cultural narrative when you're uh, treating your patient, very important. So we're very excited about being able to wrap this all together to bring together a really eclectic group of good speakers to kind of say, this is what we've learned and this is what we know about addiction right now in Native America. Well, we are rejoicing with you on that tribal affiliated medical school. What an incredible opportunity and so much needed here in Oklahoma. I I know that that is something that many people are very excited with you as well to have and to be able to really implement the work in this state that is needed and, and maybe even as a model to the other states across the United States of what we can do when we can consider people and their unique culture and really meet their need where they're at. Because that's really what we as helpers and practitioners want to do, right, is to come where our people are at and meet them where they're at culturally, physically, emotionally, all the things. And I think that's an incredible gift you're giving. And I'm excited. Well, not gift, but, you know, incredible opportunity we're providing, able to provide here in the state. And I'm very excited to see what will come of that. And I'm very intrigued and interested in attending and finding out more information about addiction in Native America and how we as practitioners can better meet those needs. I also heard a little birdie told me that you guys have invited the new Mental Health Association of Oklahoma's CEO 
Terry White to be a part of the conference, and she's going to be providing some insight into mental health parity, which you and I have talked about a couple of times previously. Can you kind of fill us in on the progress of mental health parity in Oklahoma? Yeah, uh, we are really, really excited to have uh, Terry White, who is a leading authority on mental health and substance use in Oklahoma and has been for over a decade now. As part of the conference, we are having a, a keynote address by Senator Lankford and then having a state of addiction panel with different individuals, including myself, President Trump, president of OSUCHS, Terry White, and then a the research scientists that we have leading a lot of our research efforts here at OSU, Don Kyle, and possibly others talking about what's going on right now. We hear a lot about the epidemic and about drug overdose, but we don't know where is it at today. And the uh, panel presentation is meant to, to do that. Over the last year, some incredible things have happened in Oklahoma in regards to treating addiction. And that is a concept called parity, where we want the commercial payers and really anybody financing mental health and addiction treatment to do so at the same rate that they would do for medical problems. And often a, a psychiatrist does not get paid the same amount for 15 minutes of their time as a uh, doctor treating diabetes or hypertension. And it's been a real struggle in the workforce component of mental health and addiction because uh, clinicians are going to go where they're compensated for their time. And it's been a real struggle led by some really powerful voices, including Terry White and others in the state of Oklahoma, we were able to pass parity last legislative session that helps us to take those first steps to holding the payers, insurance companies and whatever, to uh, that standard that addiction is a disease and you need to pay for it like you do all other diseases. Right. Absolutely. And it's really, you know, mental health parity is really the linchpin in all of this, isn't it? Because when we can't get the same level of reimbursement, then we can't maintain and grow and, and manage our workforce, right? And so then we have this reduced workforce, and then that means we're not able to meet the need and we're not able to meet needs that are related. You know, what am I trying to say? Affiliated. So, for example, a Native American practitioner may not want to come or stay in Oklahoma because they can't bill for the same level of care as they can in another state or another area. Or they may not want to go into psychiatry altogether where they would be, be a wonderful psychiatrist. They may choose to go into something else just because there's more um, ability to develop a healthy uh, balance of work life and and maintain wellness themselves with their finances and their balance between their work and their family. And here we need representation, right? We need representation of Native Americans. We need representation of African Americans. We need representation of LGBTQ plus practitioners out there that are able to understand and really connect on a higher level. So it really is a, a, a very trickle down effect where it ends up in a very direct way, not meeting the need, but also even also in an indirect way by not maintaining that workforce and the appropriate connection to what individuals may need. 
And it also is sending our people that Oklahoma is paying to train, and it's sending those providers and clinicians to states that do have parity. So, you know, we don't want Oklahoma to be seen as less competitive, you know, for, for no good reason. So we're very excited about parity and think it's going to be a, a game changer here in the state. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if we're going to improve our state, we've got to be looking at our health and wellness. And if we can do that, we've got to be looking at how we're meeting the needs of bringing in and keeping practitioners. Totally on the nail there. I completely agree. So let's transition a little bit into the Zero Mental Health Symposium. You have agreed to come present at our Zero Mental Health Symposium, which is coming up September 30th. October 1st and 2nd. We are going virtual as well, just like your uh, addiction conference is, is going virtual, of course, during this pandemic time. And you are presenting on historical trauma and addiction. And so I'd really love to hear your thoughts about historical trauma and addiction. Obviously, you don't have to do your whole presentation right now, but just maybe a little teaser on what symposium attendees can expect. Yeah, I, that's uh, great. I'm so excited to be able to uh, develop this talk. It'll be the uh, first time that I've ever given this presentation, and I'm really excited about it. We had a, a kind of groundbreaking paradigm shift in medicine occur in around 2000 through the original ACES study, which basically said that the more childhood trauma and household dysfunction you have as a child, the worse your health outcomes will be as an adult. And as a psychiatrist, the first time I heard a presentation on ACEs, I thought to myself, that's it. That's the answer I've been looking for as to why do my patients uh, continue to not take their medications? Why are they so sick? Why do they continue to have all these problems? And it's because of childhood trauma. Well, it's not just childhood trauma. If, if you're abused as a child, it actually changes your brain, uh, but it also changes your DNA. And that DNA is passed on to your children. So you're uh, passing down all of those brain changes and genetic traits that occur. One of those would be the propensity for addiction. And why would people become addicted? It's because they their brain changes are happening in a way that it makes them more impulsive and more inhibited disinhibited so all of us have this filter in our mind that say no i shouldn't drink i should only have one drink no i shouldn't use drugs at a party when i'm in adolescence but if you've been exposed to trauma there are brain changes that actually remove that filter or lessen it and so these individuals, you know, they don't have that filter and they're taking those drinks and using those drugs. And the earlier you use alcohol and drugs, the worse your prognosis is, the more likely you are to experience a lifelong addiction. So you pass on that DNA, which means that if individuals or a group of individuals undergo a mass traumatic event, it actually changes their DNA. And if they have not yet passed on that DNA, then it gets passed on to their children and their children's children. And a, a perfect example of this is in uh, concentration camp victims. So researchers at the University of, at Oxford University in Great Britain looked at survivors from concentration camps and they looked at the amount of 
uh, cortisol receptors they have. And cortisol is a stress hormone. So how many receptors do you have for this? Thinking that if you underwent a lot of stress, you'd have a lot of receptors. And when they tested the people who had actually been in the concentration camps, their receptors were normal and they couldn't understand why. And then they tested the cortisol receptors in their children and they were off the chart because their DNA had already been made, but it changed and they passed on the new DNA of the trauma to their children. Now, I'm very, very interested in this in Oklahoma because I think Oklahoma's had three large scale traumatic events experienced by large levels of the population that I think has made us more predisposed to addiction. That would be the Native American removals, where the Native American nations were removed from their tribal homelands to Oklahoma in often brutal, traumatic, and horrific manners. Next would be the Tulsa massacre of 1921, the race massacre that occurred in North Tulsa, where an entire uh, community was uh, decimated. And now we see the life expectancy is dramatically different between North Tulsa and South Tulsa. And then every Oklahoma knows and would agree that the Great Depression was felt here in our state, much worse than a lot of other places with the Dust Bowls and uh, whatnot, the picturing images of the Grapes of Wrath. And we need to realize that those uh, traumatic experiences that were felt by our grandparents and great-grandparents were passed on to us. And when I talk about the opioid epidemic, I tell everyone the question isn't, why are so many opioids available in Oklahoma? The question should be, why do so many Oklahomans want to take opioids? And I think it's because historical trauma. Wow, that is amazing. You know, we know that trauma and the response to trauma happens in the same areas as addiction processes take place. And so that's always been fascinating to me in that kind of systemic approach biologically. But to think of it historically is an even more incredible just lens to look at addiction through. And you kind of start to layer all these lenses and you, it starts to all come into focus and it's almost almost says, well, yes, that, why would they not struggle with addiction, right? When you have these processes going on neurochemically, genetically, environmentally, uh, that's a lot. That's a lot all pointing toward, toward these kind of addictive disease processes and, and really is a very uphill battle, as you and I know. And so I just think this is such a valuable and pertinent and poignant time to talk about the impact of historical trauma and its role and as a lens that feeds into the addictive disease processes and, and why we may struggle more, even particularly in Oklahoma. That's, that's really fascinating. I hope I can break away and hear your entire talk that day. I definitely have access to the recording, so at least I can do that if nothing else. Can you, you mentioned a little bit about that intergenerational transmission and you talked about DNA. Is it a done deal? Like once you're experienced trauma, then your DNA has changed and that's going to happen for your kid is going to, you know, it's going to be a heightened um, level of receptors because of this trauma and experience that you did or, or you did experience or is there, are there any kind of attenuating experiences? Are there any kind of, events or activities or actions that can take place to kind of 
attenuate or curb that process? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not just a bearer of bad news. I do bring hope. There's this word called resilience. And we know that uh, some children are, are just incredibly resilient, that they undergo the, the most adverse uh, childhood circumstances and grow up to be very successful, well-functioning adults. And so the, there is hope. There's been some great work done by researchers at, at OSU, including Dr. Jennifer Hayes-Grudo and Dr. Amanda Morris, looking at those resilient factors. We know about ACEs, which are the bad things that happen, but what about the positive things, what we call PACEs, the positive events in, in childhood? And it turns out that there's such simple things that parents and grandparents can do to children that really mitigate strongly against uh, these factors. And that includes a, a child needs to feel that they're loved, right? And just knowing that someone out there cares about them and loves them can help give them hope for the future. Reading to your child, it's, it's great bonding in one-on-one -on -one time and it doesn't cost any money. And then sharing family dinner time. And I do think it's really important to put the phones down at, at the dinner table, but even just having family dinner time, all of those things can help mitigate that household dysfunction and trauma that children undergo to make them feel like they have a place in this world uh, and that they're loved. They'll try to do better. They'll make better decisions. They feel like uh, somebody else is invested in them. And I, I got to tell you, uh, there's nothing more incredible than that. I agree. And I love, I love that we can end on that note of hope and connection and love and resilience, because I just so appreciate the honesty and, and transparency you've brought to this conversation about, you know, things are hard. They're hard now. They've been hard in the past. They may be hard moving forward, but there is opportunity to learn and grow and have hope and to bring about love inside of the context of families and to establish connection with those around us so that we can fight struggles uh, that may be addictive disease processes or trauma that's occurred that, that may lead to addictive disease processes and ultimately bring about resilience as individuals, families, and communities. That's, that's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, we have a tradition here that we ask our guests as we, as we wrap it up to share one last bit of wisdom. So if you wouldn't mind doing that for us and then we will be all done. Well, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And I would just say that when you talk about historical trauma and addiction and looking at mitigating the harms and all of that, I think it's really important to listen to what the evidence is showing us, to listen to the people that are experts in this field. And I can think of a more important time than for the community to come together and listen to the experts uh, that are trying to keep us all safe. If you do that, I promise you, we will find a way out of this.